Well, good morning, all. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And while you're turning, uh, a special uh, welcome to the church that's meeting in the lobby. We have, I think they have their own pastor out there, so I just want to wave to all of you and tell you we're glad you're here. Uh, Listen, we're working on the parking situation, and we're having a special meeting this week to talk about that. So, at any rate, pray for me as I and my wife Kay and Mike and Patricia Myers head out uh, next week for the Amazon, next Sunday. As I mentioned, some people visiting must have thought I was joking last week when I said that I was leaving for the Amazon because I couldn't wait to get finished this series. And Bill Clark in our church is going to be speaking on depression next week. And uh, Bill is head of our lay counseling, so you don't want to miss that. Uh, We have been looking at the subject of sexuality and the gospel. Real brief, quick review here. The whole series, and I I started at the very beginning, I said, don't judge the series until the series is over. And it'll be over in about 45 minutes, all right? You can do all the judging you want after that, all right? Not even during this time, all right? Wait till we're finished. So secondly, we talked, um, we've talked about how the fact that Man has been created in the image and likeness of God, the Imago Dei. When Adam and Eve sinned, we were broken in every which way. We were broken emotionally, reasons why we cry and and have emotional pain and all kinds of things, reason we die, the wages of sin is death. The reason we're sexually broken, we have all kinds of problems sexually, which is what this series is about. So we talked about how that that brokenness is, is throughout. There isn't a group Only society and the press and sometimes the church is guilty of creating a group of people. We talked a little bit last week about same-sex attraction and gay marriage and LGBT. That is not a group. That is just part of an avenue of sexual brokenness that all of us have, whether you're heterosexual, whether you're struggling with homosexuality. I invited everybody into the discussion on this to say everybody's welcome. We are all broken. We also have learned... We've given kind of a tagline to this whole series, and that is until you see yourself as sexually broken, you will never be able to empathize with the sexual brokenness of others. You'll never be able to to engage in any kind of discussion with others regarding this. So there isn't a group. Everybody is in this fallen brokenness together. Everybody. That's what this has really been all about. We talked about the definition of marriage last week. We said that the Bible... Jesus himself is the supreme authority in defining marriage, not the Supreme Court, not the states. And I made a very clear, bold statement. I believe that Scripture is quite clear that there is no such thing as gay marriage. Now, society may say there is, but but the Bible clearly defines marriage as between one man and one woman. We made that quite clear. We're not out to judge anybody else. We're not after anybody. We'll talk about that as we continue to work our way through the, the text today, which we'll be looking at. We talked about grace and truth. We ought to be a church that's filled with grace and truth. I'm going to introduce you to another couple uh, this morning. So as we look at this, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look down at verses 13 through 16. Today's message is on engaging the culture, meaning engaging those people that do not believe what we believe. We are not to hate them. We are not to even judge them. We'll find that a little bit later on. If you happen to be one of those people today, you're not, you wouldn't consider yourself in the kingdom. You're not a follower of Christ. You're not even sure that God exists. We're glad you're here. We are just thrilled that you're here. We want you to know what we believe about this because maybe you've read things that have given you a different impression about what the Bible actually teaches Christians are supposed to act like in this world. 
And here's what we find. The setting here is Jesus. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And he is opening up, talking to his disciples, and a large crowd is beginning to gather. We read in verse 13 these words. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege again to wrap up this series, to talk about a very delicate subject. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be the one who would speak today, open hearts and minds. And Lord, give me the words to speak that truly might penetrate those hearts and minds. And I'll give you all the glory. We pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. I think probably the best way to uh, even start this message today, engaging the culture, is to look and see how Jesus was teaching his disciples about culture. There's a number of places where Jesus engaged the culture. We can't always copy everything that Jesus did because he was obviously, he knew all things. He was supreme. He was, he was God in human flesh. So a lot of things he could do that we can't do. But there are certain principles and truths. You'll notice that Jesus was often, often drawn in to look like, look like it would be an argument. Many, many times, if you're reading through the Gospels, uh, various types of people would come to him and try to engage him in an argument. And Jesus just wasn't into arguing, all right? And I've said it before, arguments don't win arguments, all right? So Jesus never engaged in arguments. Now, here's what he has on us, has on all of us. When somebody would come up to Jesus and try to throw out, to test him, to tease him, to try to draw him in, to bait him into an argument, he'd just tell a story. And it's always the most amazing story you ever heard in your entire life. He just had that ability to go, uh, I know that guy's heart. I know exactly what he's struggling with. He's a real Pharisee. He's self-righteous, so I think I'll tell this story. Boom! And all of a sudden, he's got, I can't do that. You can't do that, all right? But there are certain principles here that I think we can operate with, that I think are pretty clear that he has here. We have given a tagline. As I said, the tagline has been, until you see yourself as sexually broken, you will never be able to engage or empathize with others who are sexually broken. There's also another part of our tagline, and the tagline is this. Love is not to be construed as agreement and disagreement is not to be construed as hate. The press has popularized that, all right? Loving somebody doesn't mean you always have to agree with them, and disagreeing doesn't mean that you hate them, all right? That only plays out in this particular scenario as we're seeing society move in that particular direction. Grace and truth combined with salt and light, the world I believe, is yet to see. Any church that is a church of grace and truth, that's one couple. Salt and light, that's another couple. When those two are together in this as a body of believers, as the church, the world is waiting for that. Because that will trump any argument any day of the week. You show me a church or an individual that is salt and light, filled with grace and truth, and you'll probably have a listening audience. They may not agree, but they will 
listen. They'll listen. And that's what we want to be about. That's what I think Jesus is all about here. When he talks about being salt and light, he's telling his disciples, this is what you were called to. You were not called to judge the world. You were called to be salt and light in the world, grace and truth in the world. When he talks about salt and light in this particular text here, basically salt has always been known, and particularly at that time, as a preservative. It's an agent that preserves. It preserved meat. And so you could say in some senses it was more on the passive side. It was just there preserving that which would tend to rot or decay. Light was more of the proactive, almost sort of a let your light so shine so that people could see what you really believe. When you pair those two, it does an incredible work in this decaying world. And what we as Christians clearly believe is that ever since sin entered this world, the world has been on a track, a trajectory of moral decay. This is why societies rise and fall. Societies don't fall because of their economy. They don't fall because of their politics. They fall because of their morality. And you can see it and you can read about it over and over and over again. Anytime a society is given over to its lusts and its passions, that society is doomed to fail. Which is why Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of this world. So he starts out, we start out, this is what this ought to look like. It ought to look that way. We are the preserving agents, all right? It doesn't mean we have to be loud. Salt and light aren't loud. It doesn't mean we have to yell at people or argue with people. It's a, it's a character. It's a virtue. It's a trait. It's a way. And this is what draws people to the truth. And again, as if, you're, if you're visiting here, I just want you to know that maybe what you've read, maybe what you've seen in churches is one of the reasons you don't go to church. You've seen too much of what looks like hypocrisy. We'll deal with that in a moment. But I want to start out with this particular section here to let us know this is what Jesus is calling his church, his body of believers to do. We're to be salt and light. We looked last week, of course, at being grace and truth. Anytime that a culture starts moving in a particular direction, as our culture has, it automatically invites certain questions. And I've picked what I consider to be probably the top four questions, and it isn't just about this issue of same-sex attraction. We dealt with that last week and gay marriage and all that. It's the whole nine yards. It's adultery. It's premarital sex. It's pornography. It's, it's a homosexual sex. It's everything. We're all in the same swimming pool. Everybody is broken. We've tried to drive that home over and over and over again. That's the one thing I want us all to get out in the, of this series of messages. Now, this automatically raises some questions, and I can't answer all the questions, so I've picked four that I think most people would probably ask me if I were to pass out a microphone. And some of you could ask me, I would have to say I don't have an answer to that, all right? Maybe that'll be for, an, for another time. But for right now, let me pick what I consider to be the top four. And I'm going to tell you this in advance. The first two, I don't fall into the evangelical party line. I'm going to be off-center, all right? And some of you are going to say, I just don't agree with that, and that's okay. You don't have to agree. The reason I wore a, a sport coat today is I want you to like me a little bit more because of what I'm getting ready to say, all right? <laughs> so just thought you, I'd dress up a little bit, all right? Um, those of you that are visiting, I rarely wear a coat, all right? 
First question, first issue is this. Are people, and now we are dealing with same-sex attraction, are people born that way? The typical party line from the evangelical community, Christian community, is, as I said last week, and you'll hear people say this, and I wish they wouldn't say it, of course they're not born that way. God don't make no junk. You heard me say that last week? That somebody actually said that to me, and I wanted to respond and say, he made you, didn't he? Uh, God didn't make any junk. Sin did. And once sin entered the world, all of us are junk in that sense. All of us are broken. The question is, are some people born that way? Well, I look at my own life, and I say, and you've heard me speak many times very highly of my father, wonderful man, great man, great character. But my dad did have a couple of interesting traits. Uh, he was very impatient, very impatient, and he could, he could get angry pretty quick. Didn't last long, but he was... You just didn't want to set him off. Guess who's very impatient and gets angry pretty quick? Moi. Where did I get that from? The scriptures say the sins or the iniquities of the fathers are visited upon the children of the third and fourth generation, meaning all the way down the line. Doesn't mean your parents had to have had that, but it could be way back. Why wouldn't that be true? Some of you would say, well, you know, the reason that, I, that I'm hooked on pornography, I find a stack of uh, dirty magazines in my father's garage when I was eight, and that's just, that's just who I am. Or, the re I, you know, I, I'll admit, I've just, I just got to go to the mall every other day. I love material possessions. You know, that's just me. But the minute we talk about this, oh, it couldn't be them. Why not? Why couldn't there be a small percentage of people that are born with that basic bent or proclivity? I'm still responsible for how I live out my life, as everybody is in every single area as to how they live out their lives. We're all still responsible. And so I do believe a certain percentage probably have that. I'm not in the party line on that. I believe most, at least the ones I've talked to, have, were either sexually uh, uh, assaulted or abused as a small child or saw something that, that just triggered something and changed things. All right, it happened. It's a broken world. We love you. Don't ever look at yourself, if you have this problem, as you're a pariah in society or some sort of a blemish on society. I talked about that last week. Everybody here is in the same camp, just broken differently, all right? So there's the first one. The second one is this. Can a person, this, this is a hot button, I know it. Can a person be gay and live this out and be a genuine, true believer? All right? That's, that's one of the big questions. And I'll tell you where this plays out. The passage that is most often used to say that any person that lives that way uh, will not go to heaven that they'll go to hell. That's, 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 that's what we tend to yell out at society. And the text that is used normally is this particular text. You don't need to turn, but it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty clear. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So, uh, when we look at this particular text, it seems pretty clear because it mentions homosexual activity there. And in that particular text, it also mentions a few other things. <laughs> it mentions lots of things. And it says, it says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty clear. And so if a person says, see, it says homosexual offenders, they won't enter in. It also says that slanders won't. 
It says covetous won't. Can you possibly live in Northern Virginia and not be covetous? All right? Could you possibly say that you don't ever do any of these things? Yeah, but you know, they, they, don't, no, let's not start playing games here. The list that is given here, there's lots of lists in Scripture. We'll look at one a little bit later on of, of what is inside of a human being, what is in man. Now, here's the key word. Such were some of you. See, it says were. And so some people will pick out this one issue, homosexual, and they'll say, see, got to part from that. I was in the military. I am no longer in the military. All right? Some, some of you were pregnant. You're no longer pregnant. All right? There's no, I'm sort of in the military. I'm sort of pregnant. I'm sort of, no, it's one or the other. Okay? It's one or the other. If you were a slanderer, that means you are not a slanderer at all anymore. It's past tense. Really? You were covetous. You've never coveted since then? Really? And it goes on, it says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed, justified, sanctified. That's the gospel. That's a judicial statement. When God looks at Mike Minter and sees his anger and sees his impatience, he says, forgiven, cleansed, righteous, all right? Not self-righteous, righteous. That's the gift he gave me. But I still do those things to some degree. Hopefully I'm making some changes and some progress in my Christian life, and hopefully you are too. That's what I think that text says. That's me, all right? So I'm outside of the evangelical mainstream in a lot of this. This is, a, this, this is a big one. I think it's a judicial statement, all right? Here's another one. Third question. Why shouldn't people have the right to look at pornography or have the right to sleep around or have the right to have premarital sex? All, all these things. Have, have a right to any of this. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone. That's the normal that's the normal line from people in the world that look at the church and think we're judging them and that we're trying to keep them from having their sexual desires fulfilled and so on. I think my response to that would be, the question is, does it hurt anyone? Any time that we violate the truths of God's word, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, there is a natural consequence that befalls that person. There's a natural consequence to any nation that goes that route. It just has, you can go back and look at the history of nations. Look at the history of people, individuals. Anytime we violate God's principles, anytime we use something for which it was not designed by God to use, as I said last week, we wind up stripping the gears. It just doesn't work. Last week at our shepherd group, or one of our small groups, <clears throat> somebody brought up the fact, and they brought it up online. I'm just going to say it, all right, now, then we'll move on. An 18-year-old girl, this is, this is on the news, 18-year-old girl wants to marry her biological 37-year-old father. And there's one of the states that apparently will allow this, okay? And people are, are gasping at it. And, and go, but wait a minute. If there's no definition to marriage, what's wrong? And will there be consequences to that marriage? Of course there will. Will there be consequences when uh, people that want polygamy are now... Uh, part of our society. They're going to be knocking on the door of Congress any day now, probably already have. After all, there's no more any real definition. When you open up the floodgates, you drowned. When there's no definition, you just open up anything for anybody. And you've heard movie stars say, and politicians, and athletes get up and say, you ought to be able to marry anybody you want. 
And then if you tell them about this story, this 18-year-old, they'll go, well, not that. Oh, not, what, not that. Why not? Why not that? So all of these things, there are dangers. There are, there are, there are sexually transmitted disease problems. There's many things that people don't want to hear, and I wouldn't even get into those arguments. I wouldn't even go that path. I'm, I'm just sitting here to tell you that if somebody were to ask me point blank, I would say, here's why. I'm not trying to destroy your life. I'm not trying to keep you from having your sexual desires met. And it's not because I hate you. It's because I love you. I, people that I hate, I'll say, let them go. Let them do whatever they want to do. They can, they can collide and have all the consequences. People that I love, I go, no, I don't want you going down that path. And I would tell anybody that, no matter what the brokenness is in their sexuality, and it's true for all of us. It's so true for every single one of us, whatever it happens to be. Here's the next one. Now, this is a big one, all right? This is probably the biggest one of all. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7, if you would. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, you're right there in Matthew, so just go over a little bit. Um, and in chapter 7, we, will, we come across, I believe, probably uh, the most quoted passage by those outside of the camp, those that don't believe in the things of, of necessarily of the Bible, they use this. If you were to go downtown D.C. when there's an abortion rally and you got one group on one side and one group on the other, and everybody's yelling and screaming, they got their signs up or it's gay marriage or whatever it happens to be, usually you will see on one of the signs, on those that are in favor, more the liberal side, you'll see a sign, judge not. You might get that at the water cooler, at the Xerox machine. When you get into, somebody finds out what you believe. Oh, you go to that, that Bible church. Oh, you must be down on... You're not supposed to judge. Here's what I think I would do. Here's what I believe I would do in those situations because many of you are going to find yourself in that probably far more than, than, than I will be in because you're mingling more with people in that particular environment. I think I would probably say something like this. I think I would say... First thing I would say is this. Uh... I'm just real curious, uh, do you know where that is found in the Bible? 50% would probably not know. Do you know who said it? 50% probably wouldn't know. Do you know what the rest of it says? The rest of the passage says? Probably nobody would know, all right? But you're not there to give them a Bible quiz. You are there to thank them. Thank you for holding my feet to the fire. By quoting scripture to me, albeit way out of context, but quoting scripture to me, and telling me that I'm not supposed to judge because you are right on. You are on the money. We weren't called to judge, all right? Jesus made it real clear. Judge not. But there's a little bit more to the text. Just a little bit more to the text. And we'll find out what he means by this. Did he really mean that you could never judge under any circumstances, ever. He couldn't possibly mean that. Your boss calls you in for your annual performance review, and he says, you know, you haven't shown up to work once on time this year. You haven't made any sales. Hey, you're judging me. Yeah. <laughs> and you're fired. <laughs> Policeman pulls you over. You're doing 50 and a 25. Stop judging me. He's going to look at you and say, tell that to the judge. Yeah. <laughs> All of those things. This afternoon, I, there's something going on this afternoon around 6.30, some sort of a game or something. Anyway, they've got these guys in these 
you know, white striped outfits, and they're, they're, they're judges, they're referees. And they're going to decide whether or not he had full possession and both feet were in bounds. You're going to hear that all afternoon. Everybody's screaming on all sides. They're, the, they're, they're going to have to make a judgment. So why don't we just, why don't we all just go out there and say, judge not? You know, we, you know, get it. He couldn't possibly mean that. So what does he mean? Let's read the rest of it, all right? Let's start again. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measurement, or the measure you measure, you'll be, it'll be measured to you. He's talking to his disciples. If you go around judging people, and this has sort of a condemnation sort of an attitude. You're just going around pointing your finger at everybody that isn't like you. You're, you're self-righteous. If you do that, the very same judgment will be measured out to you, probably at the judgment seat of Christ, probably at the final time when we die and stand before the Lord. It has nothing with getting into heaven, as Bob Scholl made very, very clear a moment ago. Then he goes on and he says this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Remember, Jesus was a carpenter. Interesting little illustration here. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. All right? This is huge. This is really huge. Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't judge because you're going to have the same measure. Judge back to you. He is saying, first, first remove the plank, the board. Then you can do the judging. Let's make sure that your life is right before you go after somebody else and start correcting them. Once you've removed that plank, then you can go see. You'll actually be able to see the speck in somebody else's eye. Otherwise, you're a blind ophthalmologist. You're trying to operate and you can't see. And it's your self-righteousness. If you're all night long looking at porn and you're all upset, upset with gay marriage, you hypocrite. If you're, if you're stealing or lying or stealing from the IRS doing, and you're running around telling people they shouldn't do this, they shouldn't shoplift, you hypocrite. It's designed for a self-policing, that to look into your own heart first before you ever go to anybody else. He's not even talking about judging society. He's just talking about one another, the, the, the body, even before the church gets started, but it's his own followers. That's what he's talking about here. He's not saying you can never judge. Right? A little bit after that, he starts judging people. And he also says in the Gospel of John, if you're going to judge, judge righteously. There are many passages that tell us to judge. That's how we keep ourselves pure within the body of Christ. If I see somebody living outside the boundaries, way out, I'll pull them in, sit down and say, hey, listen, you know, I got areas in my own life, but for this, I, I really think you're hurting yourself. And I, I, I really, I look at this and I think this is wrong. And I point it out and people have done it to me. That's self, but that's, that's self-policing. But that's not where we are with the world. Now, without turning there, I'll just tell you another passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a very immoral situation that takes place in, in the church of Corinth. Very immoral situation. And the people aren't taking it seriously, and the Apostle Paul writes to them, and he says, this man is claiming to be a believer, 
and I want you to remove him. So a little leaven, leaven's the whole lump. I want you to remove him from, from, the, from, the, from the body, from the church. Then he goes on and he says this. He says, what business do I have? What business do I have in judging the world? Let God judge the world. It is not your job or my job to judge people outside of the kingdom or to love them or to be grace and truth, salt and light, not to judge them. But we can judge within the body. We can pull somebody aside and say, you're involved in adultery. You're doing you're, whatever. The point here is that many people don't even know that. Many people don't know that's in Scripture. And certainly the outside world doesn't know it because they think we're judging them. That's why they call us homophobic, self-righteous, you know, narrow-minded bigots and so on. Sometimes we deserve that. And some of you are saying, that's why I don't even go to church. There are so many hypocrites that go there. And this is what Jesus is trying to remove the hypocrisy. Now, one more text to look at. So we've covered some of those questions, those four big questions, I think. Now let's take a look. I want you to turn to your right and turn, if you would, to Luke, um, Luke chapter 18. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Luke chapter 18. And in this particular uh, passage, uh, we find the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, this is going to help us summarize all of what we've set up to this point. All of you that have attended here for any length of time know that probably once a year I go to this text, maybe twice a year. And usually I go for, I say, oh, there's something in this text I've never seen before. I'm going to show you something I've never seen before in this text. Doesn't mean I haven't actually read it with my eyes. I just never really saw it. To, to, so to set the, the stage here, here, here's what we're dealing with. Jesus is going to talk about being self-righteous, all right? pointing the finger at other people that you think you're better than, that I think I'm better than, all right? And he says, this is a parable about a Pharisee. Pharisees were professional good people. Pharisees kept the law, and they really did. If a Pharisee was walking along and he found a dime in the dirt, he would immediately go down to the temple and drop one penny in to pay his tithe, to pay his tenth. They lived by the letter of the law. That's how they lived. They were very righteous and very self-righteous. The tax collector, and he's, he's showing you two opposite people. He didn't pick anybody. He picks the tax collector because the tax collectors were known as the absolute scum of society. They were ripping you off to pay the tax, getting, extracting tax, and then taking a huge percentage. They were loan sharks. They were just awful people. And nobody liked them, all right? So Jesus is taking the professionally good person and the professionally bad person, all right? And he's going to tell a little story here, as only he can do, all right? So Jesus, in this parable, starting in verse 9, says this, To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So if you are ever confident that you're more righteous than other people, this parable's for you, all right? And it's certainly for me, okay? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. There we go. I'm not like other people. Robbers, 
evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I have. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, beat upon his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified or declared righteous before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me tell you what I've never seen before. Read it, never saw it. The Pharisee goes out of his way to list the things that, he, that are bad that he doesn't do. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not even like this guy. Ah, not like this guy. Right? Goes out of his way. Gives us a little list. Then he gives you a, a little short list of things that he does do. You know, he tithes and he's a churchgoer and does all this kind of stuff. All right? Wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think that to keep things kind of parallel, that the tax collector would say to himself and before God, Lord, let me give you my list of sins, rather than just simply saying, I'm a sinner. Why, would he, why, wouldn't he, why does he just give a carte blanche statement? Why wouldn't he say, Lord, I'm so sorry for being a tax collector, ripping people off. I've also committed adultery. By the way, I've all, why didn't he do that? He couldn't even begin to remember all the sins that he'd committed. He could, he, no way he could possibly do it. So I thought, isn't it interesting that the self-righteous can name this whole list of the things they don't do and they, that they do do, and yet the person who is in the greatest need, all he can do is go, I'm just overwhelmed with the condition of my heart. That's what's amazing. That's what really got me this past week. And the reason is found in the Gospel of Matthew, which you don't need to turn to. I'll just read it to you. This is Jesus. Jesus does give a list. Listen to the list. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make the man unclean. Jesus does give a list, not even an exhaustive list, just enough to cover everybody. You see, if you were reading about Jesus in that text, you would probably say to yourself, oh, he must be talking about Hitler. He must be talking about Nero. No, I'll tell you who he's talking about. When he says, it's not what goes into the man that defiles him, it's what comes out of the man that defiles him, he's talking about Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, the Pope, you, me, everyone. You and I couldn't even begin to go through the whole list because we're so broken. This is why I never tell anybody to turn from sin in order to enter the kingdom. I say, enter the kingdom, and God will start turning you from sin. I never get the cart before the horse. I don't want anybody on the outside to say, you mean I've got to get my act cleaned up? I've got to stop doing this stuff? No, 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 no. You're so broken. You're so messed up. I'm so messed up. That's not how you get in. You don't get well to go to the hospital. You go to the hospital to get well. You don't get better to get saved. You get saved to get better. That's the message of the gospel. That's the beauty. And if you're here today and you've looked at the church and you've judged the church, you may have a right to judge the church. 
If we've been hypocrites and not lived up to the salt and light and the grace and truth, you have every right to be upset. But I'm not responsible for all the churches. I'm only responsible for here. And today, we met another couple. Last week, we met a wonderful couple, grace and truth. That a church would be full of grace and truth. Today, we've met the couple of salt and light. Salt and light. Boy, two great couples. Every church ought to have this. Every church. But I'm only responsible for here. When the world meets grace and truth, salt and light, it'll be something they've never experienced before. And it will trump all the arguments and all the plaques and signs and all of the politics and everything else. There's a place for all that. But I believe the world is waiting, just waiting to meet these two couples. And I think Reston Bible Church ought to show the world what that looks like. Let's pray. If you're here today and you have never put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, I don't care what your sexual bents are, how broken you are. All I care is that you realize that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And when you come to him and cast yourself upon him and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. When you put your faith in Christ as the one that paid the penalty for that sin, was buried and rose again the third day to show that he had victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. When you believe that message, you pass what the Bible calls from death unto life. You're given eternal life. You're now in the kingdom. And God will start the healing work. He'll start working on all of us. So we invite you to come in today. If you are here today as a true follower of Christ, a believer, could you look at your own heart and say, Lord, today I repent of the fact that I am that Pharisee. Because I know I am. So often, I find that little Pharisee running around inside my heart, judging other people that are just broken differently than I am. So, Father, I pray that we would be a church that is full of grace and truth, salt and light, and that we would go forward. That would be our platform to a world that's in such desperate need of hearing the good news of the gospel. And we'll give you all the glory. As we pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.